Uh, if you're familiar with uh, the Bible, could we agree on this? This is one of the clearest things in Scripture that God calls the nation of Israel His special chosen people. Can we all agree on that? God calls Israel, the nation of Israel, His special chosen people. So you may be wondering, how in the world did that happen? Well, if I could attempt to cover 2,000 or 4,000 years in just a few sentences... 4,000 years ago, here's how it happened. God came on a man, unbeknownst to this man, this man named Abraham. And literally, I'm paraphrasing, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a great nation. You don't even have kids yet. Your wife's barren. You're old. But I'm going to make of you a great nation. And through you, the world will be blessed. And particularly, one of your descendants, the special chosen seed, will be the one that blesses the world. So God initiates that, again, reading between the lines, Abraham's response, okay, okay, did you get it? God tells Abraham how it's going to be, and Abraham says, okay, let's do this. (laughs) He's just long for the ride. And of course, it was all contingent and riding on this special seed. And so 2,000 years later, God sends what the Jews call their Messiah, the Christ, He sends Jesus, as we sang a few moments ago, and it was even noted, God became flesh. Literally, Jesus is God. But, as we finish Romans 10, one of the things we noticed is that salvation is only through Christ. For the last 2,000 years, it is only by believing in Jesus. It's not by believing in God. Only through Christ. But many have not heard of Christ. In fact, this is now the time where we start really contemplating, and please don't let this fall on deaf ears, we need to be praying, God, what would you have us to do to get the gospel through missionaries that are going to North America? And if you think there's not a need in North America, you're dreaming. I'm telling you, there are people being born in these cities all the time in different parts of the United States. They will live and die. We are becoming like the other nations. They will live and die without ever hearing the real story behind Jesus other than using his name as a curse word or something that was apparently a historical figure, but we're not going to give him any time in the public school system. It's not like he changed the world, right? I want to talk about everybody else that had a little blip on the screen. Why am I saying this? This is such a rabbit I don't have time to chase. All right. So we need to be praying, Lord, what would you have us give? You can start giving any, any time between now and Easter, Online, in the offering plate, doesn't matter. Uh, We said about three weeks ago, you've been blessed to be a blessing. Those blessings do do not stop with us. We read a passage in 1 Timothy about the rich are not to be arrogant and they're not to rely on the riches, uh, but they're to give thanks for that and to be a blessing to other people and enjoy those things. God gives us good things to enjoy, but the blessings don't just stop with us. That would be anti-biblical. That would be sin. Here's a great opportunity to partner with 46, 47,000 other churches to get the gospel to North America as we do this Annie Armstrong offering. Some of your kids may be hitting you up for that. They're right now uh, hearing about their way to take an offering over the next four or five weeks. All right. So here's the thing. It's the end of chapter 10. We're not going to go back and read it. But Paul, knowing that many, over a billion, have never heard about Jesus... In essence, asks, do the Jews qualify as people who've never heard about Jesus? Mark it down, they've heard. Many people around here have not heard. Many people around the world haven't heard. But I'm telling you, Jews around the world have heard about Jesus, who we call the Christ. They've heard about him. And so Paul also asks, maybe they don't understand. Okay, we can't say they haven't heard. Paul says, maybe my people don't understand. Oh, no, no, no. He acknowledges they understand. The problem is not that they don't understand the claim that Jesus is the Christ. The problem is Romans 10, 21. Look at it on the screen. But of Israel, he says, all day long. It's not they haven't heard. It's not that they don't understand the ramifications. All day. Here's the problem. God says, all day long, I've held out my hands to a, not ignorant here, disobedient and contrary people. Israel refuses to put their faith and trust in Christ. That led us last week 
to the first 10 verses, of which I'm only going to touch chapter 11, verse 1. This was last week's message. So God's offering this, but they keep on disobediently and in a contrary spirit rejecting God. So Paul asked, I ask then, has God rejected his people? And the idea is not just reject his people like, no no thanks, I'm not taking you guys. It's his people that he's already called his chosen people. Literally, it's the idea he's embraced them, but is he going to throw them away? But the verse continues. So Paul's question in verse 1 was this. I asked then, has God rejected his people? In essence, has God cast off because they keep rejecting? Has God just said, I'm going to reject all of you then? And Paul's answer is, oh, no, no, no. No, no, no. By no means. And he gives the proof. For I myself am an Israelite. I am a Jew. And he says, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm proof that there's a remnant. He goes back and he talks about Elijah's day where Elijah thought he was the last one who believed in Jehovah. But he wasn't. He found out there were 7,000 that hadn't bowed the need, their need of Baal. And then Paul says, by the way, there's many in our day. And there continues to be, again, percentage-wise, not many but still many, there are thousands and no doubt tens of thousands around the world of Jews, even to this day, who put their faith in Christ. But that's minuscule compared to the millions. So last week's message, here's what we found out. God's election guarantees he's not totally cast off the nation of Israel. There's always a remnant, even in this time. And what he's saying is he's rejected the majority, but he's not rejected All of them because the rejection is a partial rejection. That was last week's message, verse 1 and 1 through 10. And that brings us now to this week. Before we read the whole text, would you look at just verse 11? Different question. Paul says, So I ask, based on. So last week, it's not all of them, it's a partial rejection. So verse 11, so I ask. Talking about Israel, did they stumble in order that they might fall? This is a different question. Here's what it means. So has the nation, okay, we got this remnant, has the nation as a whole fallen and stumbled in such a way they will never come to the Lord? They will never put their faith. Literally, here's what he's saying. Will it always be like this? Will it always be only a little trickle? Will it always only be a remnant? Is this what we can expect moving forward from the Jews and God's plan for the Jews? Have they fallen and to never really get back up? Paul says, oh, no, no, no. By no means. Listen. Here's a thought. Don't let what you see right now make you think it will always be like it is right now. That's a major thing. Christian, this, you could apply this in a hundred ways. Don't assume how things are the way they are right now. They're not always going to be that way. And that's what Paul is saying in verse 11. Did they stumble in order that they might fall? Or are they just going to stay down? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. So, verses 11 through 24, today's text, here's Paul's answer. Oh, no, no, it's not that it's just going to continue to be this trickle. This rejection, not only is it partial, this rejection is temporary. Don't buy into the thing that it's always going to be this way. There's only always going to be a remnant of Jews. Oh, no, many, in fact, you'll see next week the word all. We'll have to explain that. Don't go too far with that word. So, it's temporary. The rejection is partial. The rejection is temporary. It will not always be a remnant. It's a remnant right now, a small remnant, but the day's coming. Now, with that in mind, would you read? And this is going to be one of the most important parts. This will be one of the most difficult parts is reading this text because it's kind of tricky. I'll make a few comments along the way. We're going to read like 14 verses. So verse 11 to 24 is today's passage. Verse 11 again. So I ask about Israel. Did they stumble in order that they might fall to stay down? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles because of their trespass. So as to make, so this salvation of the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass, same word as used in verse 11, If their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure, different word, if their failure, their failure means riches for the Gentiles, 
How much more will their full inclusion mean? Uh-oh, there's a hint of what's coming in the text. So what, Paul, what are, you, what are you saying? If God can bring good out of these things, their trespass and their failure, great opportunities, great necessity, then what if they were to be fully included back? What would that be like? Now, verse 13, in case you've missed it, he's talking to us. Now, I am speaking to you, Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. Paul was an apostle to the Jews. That, frankly, is his first love. He was also called to preach to kings and to governors. But his main calling, opposed to what he really had a conversation with the Lord, he kind of argued about that, but the Lord said, no, your main calling is to the Gentiles. So here's what he says. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. I want it to be big. I'm going to do it. I want it to be big. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous. I want this thing to be so big, they get jealous and thus save some of them. Four, here's another great question. We'll not really hit part B of verse 15 to right at the end of the message. For if their rejection, God's rejecting them as a whole, if that rejection means the reconciliation of the world, that's not everybody, but the pattern around the world is the Gentiles are coming to Christ, being reconciled. So here's Paul's question. If that's their rejection, it's our reconciliation, what will their acceptance mean when God accepts them? What would that mean but life from the dead. It'll be like life from the dead. And now here's where the trickiest part, next few verses. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so the crops come in and they take the first portions, the best, and they make these cakes and they take it down to the house of God and they give it to the Levites and the priests as an offering. So verse 16. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, by the way, some of us just a few minutes ago dropped in, maybe it was an offering, or you put in a tithe. In other words, you got paid this week, and so you took the first, it's probably quirky, I'll just tell you, it's my personality. Most of the time, when I'm sitting down, I'm still old school, I still write checks. I wrote out 11 things the other day, 11 different, because we've got some at the start of the month and some at the middle of the month, 11 different things. Just me, the first one I wrote is first fruits back to the Lord. What does that even mean? Well, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. Hopefully when you put that, that tithe and offering in a while ago, what that means is, Lord, here's the first fruits, which means it's all yours. You got the whole thing. Back to verse 16. So we're using this Old Testament passage out of Numbers. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And now he changes analogies to a tree. And if the root is holy, well, then so are the branches. If the root's holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and that if is meaning since, Oh, we got this tree. If some of the branches were broken off, and you, who's he talking to? Gentiles. You, although a wild olive shoot, you're wild, you're a wild olive, you were grafted in among the others. So some are broken off. Now you're being grafted into this tree among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. Don't be arrogant toward the branches that were broken off. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root. You're a branch. You're a wild branch. You don't support the root. You need to remember this. Don't be arrogant. If you are, remember, it's not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, I'm going to add a word here, but, here's the idea, Branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Come on, Paul. (laughs) It's me. God loves me. They were cut off. I'm brought in. 
Verse 20, that is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast, the idea, stay connected or connected through faith. So do not become proud, but fear, fear. For if God, uh, I'm going to read this and go, is this, was this, does this mean what I think? Listen to the first reading, we'll talk about it in a little bit. For if God did not spare the natural branches, we could say the original ones, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. I like the kindness of God. That's what I really like to focus on. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen. Doesn't go well. But God's kindness to you. You're like, yeah, that's the part I like. Well, God's kindness to you provided you continue in His kindness. Provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. What? Now he switches back to the Jews. And even they. If they do not continue in their unbelief. What if they stopped their unbelief and started believing? Even they will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Well, I hope just by the reading of that, Hopefully two things happen. Hopefully you start to get some clarification, but you probably got, I've got some clarification, but I've got lots of confusion. Where, where are we going this morning? I told you last week, every week I find out like with you guys where we're headed, and this is a tough one. This is, this is a really tough passage. Normally we look at three things. I want to look at four this morning, okay? Number one, would you notice with me the necessity of Israel's trespass? The necessity of Israel's trespass. Let me say it again. The necessity of Israel's trespass. Verse number 11, so I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall or the Jews down and out? By no means, rather. That's an important word to me. I'm going to kind of get split words for a second. Rather. Guys, what that means is, is Paul, because God is telling him, watch this. God is saying to Paul, Paul, tell them, I know the future, I know the past, because I control the past, I control the future, I make happen what I want. Listen, nothing is happening that is rash, unplanned, taking God off guard. God's actions are measured. Some Christian, you say, this isn't even the interpretation of the passage, I know, but you need to hear this. Things in your life right now you feel like are totally out of control. It's on schedule. But does that mean this? No, rather, God steps back and says, I see the big picture. Rather, here's what's going to happen. It's necessary. I have something I'm going to bring out of it. So verse 11 continues. No, no, no. It's not that they're down and out forever. God's not going to reject the whole nation forever. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and that sounds like good for us, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, and then he asks the question, what if they were all come back? I believe, uh, by the way, what I'm about to say, I would not die for, I'm not dying for what I'm about to say, okay? In fact, I, I read these passages, and I take notes, and I pound some things into the text, and my text gets really, really big, and then I go check some other folks and read after them, and then it gets even bigger, uh, and thank the Lord, hopefully most of the time what I read from other folks is like, hey, God showed me that too, and that kind of matches. I didn't really see this brought out, so I wouldn't die for this, but I'm going to offer to you, I'm going to make a distinction between two words in verses 11 and 12. The two words are the word trespass and the word failure. And we'll actually write this down in the second note in a moment. Trespass to me sounds like an action, almost like a single action. Failure, now that's a negative. That's something you're not doing. That's negating. That's refusing. So this trespass is what we're talking about here first. What is the trespass? 
Paul says, rather through their trespass, salvation. I believe the trespass is the nation of Israel killing the Christ, the Son of God, crucifying him, hanging him on a tree. You say, if that's the trespass 2,000 years ago, what is the failure? I believe the failure is their continuing refusal to put their faith in Christ. Now, originally, they didn't believe in Christ. They refused to believe in him, which led to their hatred, which led to their trespass, kind of a one-time thing over a period of three years, ultimately culminating at what we call the Passion Week and Easter. So there's the trespass. Over here's the failure. It just keeps going and going and going. They just refuse to accept. It's what they're not doing. They're not trusting in Christ. They're rejecting, and they get rejected. But if you want to write it down, the main point, verse 11 and 12, is though Israel killed their Messiah, trespass, They killed their Messiah, Jesus Christ. It was absolutely necessary for salvation. It was absolutely necessary. Could you imagine with me? You're like, well, the Jews should have known. What if they had known Jesus really was the Christ? What if that had happened? I'm going to propose to you, had they known, had they received him then, not only would they not have killed Christ, they would not have let anyone kill Christ. They would have died by the hundreds of thousands defending Jesus. And so Paul is saying, God brought good out of this thing. It was actually a necessity that this happened. You say, what if their evil doesn't occur? Listen carefully. If their evil doesn't occur, hell, a real place, is impossible for you to escape if the Jews don't kill their Messiah. Somebody had to pay for our sins. You're going to pay for your sins one of two ways. Either Jesus did it on the cross or you will through eternity. I just made a true statement. Either you will through eternity or Jesus already has and the only way you access that is by faith. This is a necessity. Now, Write it down. Israel was wicked. Man, they were cruel. They cheated. They paid liars to testify against Jesus. They had an illegal court in the middle of the night that didn't have all of the Sanhedrin present. They got together a little quorum, enough to know that they were the ones who were on their side, pushed it through, pushed it on Pilate the next day. Yes, Pilate had a part in it, but mainly it's these Jews that were cruel and wicked. But here's the thing. Now that it's done, now that it's done, God has a plan to eventually bring the nation of Israel back to him. And he will do that. God will bring them back. So number one is the necessity of Israel's trespass. Number two, I already alluded to it, is the opportunity from Israel's failure. Noting a difference between failure and trespass. This time we'll even write it down. What is the trespass? Israel's trespass was murdering Jesus 2,000 years ago. That's their trespass. They crucified. How could they have possibly done that? Well, God brought good out of it. There is no salvation if they don't do that. Israel's trespass is murdering Jesus 2,000 years ago. Their failure, which is referred to in verses 11 and 12, is their ongoing rejection of Jesus as their promised Messiah. And that failure, according to verse 12, if their trespass, killing their Savior, means riches for the world, salvation's possible, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles. So their failure, their continuing to reject Christ, means the door's been opened to us. We get to come in. We just kind of read about this tree analogy. Hey, they're cut off. We're brought in. Kind of gets a little confusing. So I want to borrow a parable from Christ. Would you turn, if you have Bible with you, hopefully you do, Luke 14. Would you look back over there, Luke 14. So we're talking about the opportunity from Israel's failure, this ongoing neglect of their Messiah, this rejection of him, just refusing to acknowledge. And this goes on even to this day. Luke 14, the scene is Jesus has been invited to eat at someone's house and... It's a Pharisee's house, and a lot of his buddies, so these are really religious Jews. Uh, they're already mad at him because he heals a man of a disease at the meal. Jesus notices two things. This guy's only invited his buddies, so he gives him a little speech about when you throw a big meal, and like you think it's, you're doing something great by doing that, don't invite just your friends. Invite 
people who can't pay you back. And he also noticed when everybody was coming to the meal, how they all clamored to the best seats, and he told them, that's not very wise. When you go to something like that, take the lowest seat, and the, the master of ceremonies can always say, what are you doing over here, man? You need to be over here, and it's better. What are you doing in this seat? You need to get down there in that seat. Y'all are in the wrong places. So make sure you start at the lowest. Don't assume yourself to be someone. Get moved up. So watch verse 15. In the middle of all that, I'm going to read all the way through, and then we'll step back and see if you don't see some symbolism and representation of this story. In Jesus, verse 15. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said, I don't know if this guy's issue is he's wanting to break up the tension or what, but so Jesus is giving these speeches and these Jews are being kind of kicked back, knocked back. So in the middle of that, this man says, uh, Blessed is everyone who eats bread in the kingdom of God. I picture him holding up his glass like, everybody that eats bread in the kingdom of God, bless that, right? Amen? Here, here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cheers, cheers. Clink, clink, clink. Yeah, all right. But verse 16, Jesus again changes the spirit of the evening. He said to him, a man once gave a great banquet. And invited many. It's implied in the text that as the invitations went out, that the people accepted. You don't see it, but it's implied. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. It's ready, it's time. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field. I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. Well, I got to tell you, my thought would be that, you, seriously, you bought a field, you haven't looked at it. You're not real smart. You just bought five yoke of oxen, you haven't seen what they look. No, I need to go check them out. Okay, you're an idiot. <laughs> but will you notice this? You're going to see in a minute, this is a relationship with God. This is all symbolic and representative. Do you, do you see the kinds of things that people will use to just not have a relationship with the Lord. I got my possessions over here. I got my property, my land. Over here's this person. I've got my oxen. I got my business. I got my work. My work just dominates. It's the most important. I'd love to come to your little banquet, but I got my work. And over here, I got my possessions. Well, then you got this other person, verse 20. Another said, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So I got my relationships. Uh, It'd be great, and I'm sure one day I'll want to do that, but right now I'm kind of distracted by these other things. So verse 21, the servant came and reported those things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city. Here's what I want you to do. You bring in the poor, the crippled, and blind, and lame. Again, there's a gap between verse 21 and 22 because it's implied he goes out and does that. He comes back, verse 22. The servant said, Sir, what you've commanded has been done. Uh, and still there's room. And the master said to the servant, Well, here's the solution to that. Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Do y'all see what those things represent? If you were to look at that three times, I think you would agree, man, no-brainer, this is what that's teaching in the context. I'm going to offer it to you. This banquet represents a relationship with God, fellowship with God. Literally, there's going to be a marriage supper of the Lamb. It is symbolic of this. There's going to be this thousand-year reign on the earth, a literal thousand-year reign. And God is the one who's throwing this, this banquet. And he sent out the invitations, and this group of people said, oh yeah, we're in, we're all about that. Tell us when it's time. Wonder who those people are who were invited in verse 16. They're invited, the many, that's the Jews. The Jews were invited. Oh yeah, we'll be looking for the Messiah. Can't wait till he gets here. The verse, the, in verse 17, the servant comes. Who is this servant? This servant is first represented by John the Baptist who tells the Jews, your Messiah's here, your Christ is here. It's time. And then they start making these excuses. Oh yeah, we said we were coming, but we're reneging. Uh, We don't want to go to that banquet. We don't receive him. 
And so they start rejecting. And the servant is also continued by the apostles who continue, even in the book of Acts, to offer the kingdom to the Jews and they continue to refuse. So that brings us down. Who are these people that come from the streets and the lanes of the city who are the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame? I'll tell you who they are. They are Jews. But they're the Jews that sinned a lot and sinned outwardly that everyone would look at and say, they're outcasts, the king, y'all forfeited the kingdom of God. Here comes Jesus and he starts offering the kingdom to them. And these people start really getting attracted to him. And he even has a, a what's like name calling. You're a friend of sinners. Yeah, the poor, the lame, the blind, the halt. Those, that's Jesus' crowd. And so you're like, so the big shots reject him. All the low life Jews, they come from out of the streets and lanes. So we're like, who are these from the highways and the hedges? Who is that? Who is that? That's us. Oh, there's still room, my Lord. Well, then go to the highways and hedges and tell them they get to come. These who rejected, they don't get to come. Now back to Romans. Look at verse 11. Romans 11. 11, so I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall by no means rather through their trespass salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous to make Israel jealous look at verse 13 I'm speaking to you Gentiles in as much then as I'm an apostle of the Gentiles I magnify my ministry in order somehow that in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them guys listen Jews have no value. They place no value on being at a banquet that has Jesus at the head of it. We don't want to be part of that. But the thing is, Jesus is the only way to go to heaven, whether you're a Gentile or a Jew. You have to go to heaven through Jesus the Christ from Nazareth. He's the only way. Well, we don't value that. And so Paul says very simply, Gentiles, I need your help. I want to do such an awesome job winning Gentiles to Christ that when Jews see you living life, they get jealous of your relationship with God. So as they're living their life, having lots of truths, lots of facts out of the Old Testament, still looking for a Christ who's already come, I want you to live joyously. I want you to have a real relationship with the Lord. Listen, I want you to have a changed life, so much so that they acknowledge, well, they got something. I don't know what it is. They, they got something. Guys, I don't know any, if anyone in here knows a Jew, but if a Jew knows you, please live in a way that they would inwardly think, I do kind of wish I had what they had. I'm going to give you a hint. If your life is full of outward sin that God's word, their Bible, says black and white is wrong, you're not making anybody thirsty for Christ. And so Paul's saying, help me magnify my ministry. Live joyously. Live differently. Live changed. Number three. Now, Romans 11, verse 17 to 22. I'll not read it all at this time, but here's our third thought. Warnings to all who claim Christ. Warnings to all of us who claim Christ. Would you look at verse 17? But if, and I'm going to come back to 16 in a moment. But if some of the branches were broken off, So there's this tree, some branches are broken off. If some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, three warnings. First one, do not be arrogant. You know what Paul is telling us? Hey, Gentile, Christians, you put your faith and trust in Christ. Wonderful. Do not be arrogant. You know, last week I preached on election, right? We went into that. That was probably two-thirds of that message. Uh, We didn't back up from it. Don't retreat from it today. Um, I want to preach it in a balanced way. Do y'all know what some people accuse people who believe in election of of being? They say, you who believe in that election, predestined knowledge, foreknowledge stuff, y'all are are arrogant. You know why they say that? Because a lot of people who believe in election, foreknowledge, predestination are arrogant. That's why they believe it. Hey, we're we're the elect. God saw something in me. I'm special. God, you know, it's me. I mean, you can kind of see why God chose me. Like, what? You missed the whole point. No, 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 no. I believed Christ when they didn't. You must believe. Listen, you must believe in Jesus to go to heaven. 
If you're a true Christian, you have believed in Jesus to go to heaven. But as we said last week, His grace was upon you prior to you putting your faith in Christ, allowing you to put your faith in Christ. Nothing to be arrogant about in all of that. First warning, do not be arrogant toward the other branches that were broken off. Now, would you look back at verse 16? I need to go back and touch on that. And here's another section. Ah, I just, I'm not, I'm going to offer some options, okay? And I regret I did not put these on a screen. We did not have room in the handout, but I could have made a screen. But I didn't. I apologize. You have only my words, verse 16. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so holy means dedicated, set apart. So here's, we already talked about this. First, first of the grain comes in. We make our cake. Lord, we're offering that. It's holy, it's dedicated, it's separated. It represents the whole thing. It's all yours. We know it all comes from you. This is a thank you. And if you want more, you just put it on our heart and you let us know. It's all yours. So the dough is holy. So the whole lump. Now he switches analogy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. All right. First fruits and Old Testament offerings... Represent the entire crop. It's yours. If you want to write this down, the dough that's offered and the root, anyone. I saw this without looking at someone else. If you want to look ahead at verse 28, I think that's one of the clues. You say, what is this root and what is this dough that's the first fruits? What is this root that's going to kind of have such an effect on the rest that's to come? If you want to write it down, the dough and the root represents the Jewish patriarchs, particularly Abraham. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're the root. They're the first fruits of the dough, symbolizing the rest is sacred and holy and dedicated to the Lord. So the root. And really we could say this relationship with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, here's what it means. They're favored by God. Abraham is favored by God. He enters into a covenant with God. Well, that's the root. That is the dough. I'm very confident in that. Don't have any issue with that. Very confident that's what that means. You say, so Jeff, what are these branches? What are these original natural branches? I believe those are the tribes of Israel. And each little shoot off of those represents literally individual Jews among the millions and millions. There's this huge tree. And Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are the root. And they have this covenant with God only by grace. And they respond in faith. And so here's this, this, this tree that grows out of that. And there's all these branches. There's these 12 tribes. And any of them who have the same faith as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, well then, they get to stay part of the tree. God accepts them. Then it gets so tricky. Even Gentiles, if they'll have the faith like Abraham, they get to come in and be grafted into the tree, and they get to start partaking of the sap and the energy and the blessings of the root. Now, for time's sake, I've got to fly through the following. I'm going to lose over half of you right here. Don't check an email or text, please, uh, but check back in in about four minutes, okay? Because the other half of you are going to be like, I'm going to actually listen. I want to kind of, I've heard of this. What is this olive tree? I don't know, okay? So I'm going to offer you, I'm going to give you my opinion. I'm going to offer you four interpretations that have been put forth as possibility. What is this olive tree? Number one, they're all different. Watch. Some believe the olive tree is the nation of Israel. Very common view. Watch. The olive tree is the nation of Israel alone. And if anybody wants to get in on the covenant, you need to be brought in to their olive tree and become Jewish. What they would call a proselyte. You want in on it? You got to come become one of us. Be absorbed into Israel. View number two. They all begin the same. View number two believes it, the olive tree begins Jewish. Duh. That's right out of the text. No hard problem there. It begins Jewish. Watch the wording. But becomes the church. So Jeff, is that what you believe? Not standing here right now. I don't believe this one. Did you say, what is it? Begins Jewish. Moving along. Hundreds, hundreds, hundreds. 
1,500 years, 2,000 years. But it becomes the church. Where do they get that? They, they go to Ephesians chapter 2 and passages like that, which acknowledges when Jews get saved through belief in Jesus Christ, they come into the church, and in the church there is no distinction of Jew or Gentile. Sounds great. Here's the only problem with that view, taking a hard line of that view. Here's what it means. There is no more Israel. Israel just gets absorbed into the church. Case closed. End of story for them. All along, it was just everything promised to them, even the land things and all of the millennial things and all those thrones. That's all ours. That, the whole thing all along started with them, but they be, it's, it's all about the church. It became us. They're absorbed into us. View number three, much closer to mine. Doesn't have to be yours. Please, doesn't have to be yours. Here it is. This view believes it begins as Israel but includes the church. So it's Jewish, Israel, then it includes the church, and I would even say those who get saved during this church age that are Jewish are in the church, and there is no distinction. There is no Jew, Gentile, slave, or free, you know, male or female. All of those distinctions are gone. You're Christian. You're in the church. But it, a little different. It doesn't acknowledge as though there's no plan of God left for the nation of Israel. This one says, oh, there's still a plan of God. In other words, the, listen, the tree in this view is bigger than Israel. It's bigger than the church. It's big. But here's a fourth one. The only one I read, I, I, I had eight sources checking on this chapter. That's why I'm so slow back in my office. Eight sources, but anyway. Alva J. McLean. I lean toward, this is a version really of what I just said. Alva J. McLean offers, now here it gets tricky, you're going to have to listen really well. The tree represents the place of favor and privilege. I would add the, the phrase, a place of opportunity. What is this tree? It's a place of favor, opportunity, it's a place of privilege. Not everybody's in it. Notice what he says. This is not direct quotes, by the way, none of this, I'm summarizing This is key to this theory. It does not save anyone to be in the olive tree. I mean, the olive tree. doesn't save anyone to be in the olive tree. It's just a place of favor and privilege and opportunity. The Jews were in there first, but most of them have been removed because of their unbelief. And Gentiles are brought in, except a billion. A billion, you'd say, they're they're not brought into the place of privilege and opportunity. Everybody here today, you would all be in it. You're like, yeah, all of us believers... What he points out here is, McLean offers, all of the professing church for the last 2,000 years and all around the world is in the olive tree. They've been brought into the place of opportunity, the place of favor, the place of privilege. They've all been brought in. Where some really do believe, others, though, do not. And they, too, will be broken off. And I read that, and I'm like, being in the tree does not save because their branch is broken off. And even tells others among the Gentiles, you better be careful or you'll be broken off. And I read that and I'm like, that's probably where I fall. Until I hear a better one. If you've got a better one, tell me. Number two. So we're on the third point. What are these warnings? Number one, don't be arrogant. Number two, if you are arrogant. Hey, I'm one of the chosen. I'm God's favorite. Then you need to remember. Look at verse 18. What do we need to Remember. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the, you, but the root that supports you. If tempted to be arrogant over your salvation, don't be arrogant. Remember. Remember what? Listen carefully. You are supported. So if there's a teenager here this morning, you don't pay a single bill, you don't make any money, and you are well-to-do, you don't need to be running around all the other kids at school being arrogant. You don't earn a dime. You're supported, right? You're just supported. You're getting in on the blessings, but you're supported. You say, what's the point? Listen. Paul is going out of his way to tell Gentiles, you better have the right attitude toward the Jews. Why? You've been supported by them. You owe them. To my knowledge, 
only one known writer of the Scripture was one of us, and that was Luke. The others are Jewish. This is a Jewish book. We get in on it. William Barclay words it this way. So we're not independent, Barclay says. He is a foolish man who kicks away the ladder which raised him to the height which he has reached. Those Jews. Really? Well, I hope that's not in this church. If it is, it is sin. You need to repent before the message is over. You're like, why? I'm going to just tell you. I have never understood this. I'm assuming it's the Holy Spirit in me. Would not let me go there. I know anti-Semitism and hatred for the Jews abounds all through the ages, ever since they became a people. It is only by the grace of God they've not been extinguished. Everybody wants to kill them out, but they can't. That's proof of God, by the way. Can't kill off God's special people. It won't happen. Good luck. You can kill individual ones. You're not going to get the whole of them. So this has really kind of perplexed me. Why through the centuries has there been such hatred and anti-Semitism toward the Jews? And you're like, Jeff, I can give you a bunch of reasons. Oh, I can give them to you too. Here's some. They go around and claim they're God's special chosen nation. Do y'all know there's hundreds of, million, hundreds of millions of people in the Islamic religion that today would love to wipe Israel out? Why? They claim to be God's special chosen people. Uh, hello, they are. Deal with it. Uh, God can't do that. Tell God that. Good luck. God, you can't have favorites. Try that. He's bigger than you. Oh, here's another one. When they go live among other people, they don't acclimate to the culture. They just stay their their rigid ways. Yeah, in a few verses, we're going to be told to not conform to this world. Hear, hear, Jews. Don't give in. God tells them, don't you just become like the other nations around them. Some would say, well, I've got another reason. And you come up with your conspiracy theories, right? And you spend all your days and your nights and you got your little network and you're on the internet and it's these wicked Jews and they're ruining the world and they're controlling everything. They're awful. Here's some other ones. If you're honest, you won't say it. You're jealous because they're wealthy. And you're jealous because they're gifted. They're smart. They're really smart. They've been favored. But of all of those, the next one is the one that really perplexes me the most. Some people use religious grounds. It goes something like this. I hate them because they killed my Savior. Right? They killed Jesus, their Messiah. Now, I need to step back for a second. I admit... I have been frustrated. It's never led to hatred. I've been confused and frustrated. Like, I was reading the Bible and like, you Jews, what were you doing? Hundreds of prophecies. If you really don't want Jesus to be able to claim he's the Christ, don't crucify him, stone him. Hang him with a rope. Don't hang him on a tree by piercing his hands and feet. What? You read these scriptures. All the, don't, let that, don't let that soldier pierce his side. Uh, and do away with those other guys. Don't let him die among thieves and robbers and transgressors. And you better let him be married, buried in a, a mass grave and not a rich man's grave. But they don't. They're going right there. Crucify! And I feel like saying, seriously? Do y'all not see this? It's in your Bible. But never hatred. So if you want to write this down, anyone feeling anti-Semitic or hatred toward the Jews because they killed Jesus, you need to remember three things. Our sin was equally responsible. You say, I wasn't there. Our sin was equally responsible. Colossians chapter 2. I can't go into this. You take it home, look at it, read it. Watch this. It's very obviously to Gentiles. And you who were dead in your trespasses. Yeah, they had a trespass, right. You were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision. Oh, that tells us who he's talking to. That's us. Uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. You sin, there's, there's judgment. Well, how did God do away with it? This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Your sins nailed Christ 
Those Jews killed my Savior. Your sin killed our Savior. Your sin. Jeff's sin. Second thing I would warn us with, left to ourselves, we would have been just as blind. Oh, no, no. If I would have been there, I would have stopped them. No, you wouldn't have, guys. Left to ourselves, we're all dead in our spirit. There are people here right now, they're not going to understand the things of the message because we're all just dead in our spirit. God allowed them to be blinded. And the third thing I would say to us is this. You need to remember that you were saved in the first place by faith. Faith in Christ is a must, but faith in Christ is a gift. Faith in Christ is a must. Faith in Christ is a gift. You see Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9 on the screen. For by grace, you're like, right, favored, God chose me. By grace you have been saved through faith, and this, this, at least has to point to the faith. It may point back to the word saved also, and it may point back to faith, saved, and grace, all three, but at least because of grammatical rules. You need to study this out. Don't take my word for it. And this is not your own doing. If you say, well, I believed in Christ, and they are not, it's because God gave you the gift of faith to enact His grace. Remember, grace is bigger underneath. Faith is on top of that, God gives us faith, and through that, we get access to the grace of Christ. Number three. Third warning to those who claim Christ out of Romans 11. If arrogant, if you're arrogant, not only remember, first of all, don't be arrogant. If you're arrogant, remember you're supported. And then number three here, if you're arrogant, be fearful. You should be very fearful. Be fearful. Would you look at verse 20? That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. Do not become proud, but fear. What does that mean? Verse 21. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. How how do we... Listen, you say, what if I'm battling some arrogance about being chosen or the elect or I had these wrong feelings toward the Jews or other people who are just numbskulls and they've heard the same messages I've heard and they just won't get saved. What's the matter with them? Be careful. Fear. You say, what helps me fear? Verse 22. This is how you'll fear. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen but God's kindness to you. You need to step back and take an opportunity. And what it means is notice, really note, like look around us, guys. Here's what you'll see. I know there are exceptions, and I know we have to take a swath of time, but here's what you'll find. People who put their faith in Christ and live for the Lord, they go through struggles, but man, they have the blessings of God on them. Over here you have someone who just lives a godless, lawless, wicked, filthy life, and you'll see they have the ramifications that they're unfriendly, they don't show themselves friendly, they have no friends. They go out and they, they abuse substances and they pay the price. And they can't hold a job and they squander things. So what do you see? Severity toward those who keep rejecting the Lord. And over here, these, again, they have their own struggles, but blessings and mainly a relationship with God. That's in the temporal world, but if we step back and look at the eternal things, here's what we're going to find. God blesses those that put their faith in Christ. They'll have kindness, and over here will be those that will receive severity. So one more time, we need to look at verse 21. If God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Better fear. Write this down. Fear here is not that God will take back your salvation. I know some read that and go, uh-oh. Is that what that means? And you get in debates with people who think they can, you can lose your salvation. And they don't study this passage. They just read these verses and they take, well, I guess that means you can lose your salvation. No, a believer's security has been settled back in chapter 8. You cannot be more secure. This is not talking about losing your salvation. I guess if I'm arrogant, I'm going to lose my salvation. Wrong answer. You say, then what does it mean? Write this down. The fear in this passage means, here it is, if you are arrogant, your arrogance may indicate, here's the fear, you were never truly saved because your arrogance is showing that you apparently under the surface thought you had something to do with it. You must think you have something to do with getting yourself saved. So if you've been arrogant, you need to fear because maybe you aren't really saved. You thought you won yourself to Christ. 
I'm not being mean. I'm going to make a quick statement. We could take the sweetest, nicest, most law-abiding lady in here. And it would apply to the one of us that struggles with sin the most. Christian, listen. You are no better than the worst unbeliever by yourself. Apart from Christ, you're no better than the worst unbeliever. Not a lick better. I'm going to tell you the only difference between you and them. Here it is. Faith. They don't have it. You have it. Holy Spirit comes in and starts changing your life. He does that. Of yourself, you are no better than them. So I ask you this morning, do you have faith? Do you have trust? Do you really have faith in Christ? You're like, yeah, I do. One little phrase. Verse 22. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen. You need to notice that. Also, notice God's kindness to you. Uh-oh, here comes something. Provided you continue in his kindness. Provided you continue. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Can I hit something very quickly? You say, Jeff, is this talking about people who lose their salvation? No, it's talking about people who never had it. And their life of not continuing reveals it. Out of your note, verse 22 shows that continuance is a sign of true faith. Continuance is a sign of true belief, truly trusting in Christ. You say, how will I like know I've really trusted in Christ? Jeff, that faith thing is so tricky to understand. Here's how you'll know. Do you continue? Continuance is a sign of true belief. So Jeff, where do you get that from? I'm going to give you a sample. You have the references. Watch these verses on the screen. Go home and study them. Matthew 24. Look at what Jesus says. But the one who endures to the end. Everybody's falling away. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. That does not mean, well, I've got to endure to the end in order to be saved. No. He's saying the one who endures will be saved. What he's implying, read the context around it. You made it because you really were saved. Look at John chapter 8. So there's these Jews that put their faith in Jesus as he's preaching. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. That's how we'll know. Do you abide in my word? John chapter 15, verse 5 and 6. Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides, take this personally this morning, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Verse 6 is key. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. He who abides, he stays connected to me. He's a branch, I'm the vine. You stay connected. A little different analogy here. My life flows into you. You stay connected to me. If you think as a branch you can just go over here and do your own thing and produce fruit, you can't. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14. For we... The writer of Hebrews is imploring people, we've come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And maybe the strongest, 1 John 2.19, this is in our face. I'm going to make a statement in a moment. John says, they went out from us. So there's all this falling away and all this lawlessness and people are loving other things and they're going away. They went out from us But they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out. That it might become plain that they are not all of us. They went out, so it become plain. Here it comes. I hope I say this right. I don't want to be mean. I've been here a year and a half, and in that time we've had folks join the church. Please understand what I'm about to say does not mean it's only about grace for you. It's not just about grace for you. It's about the church. But do you know that just in the year and a half I've been here, there are folks who came and came and came, went through our new members class, met with an elder or deacon, gave a good enough representation of a testimony of salvation in Christ, and almost immediately after being brought in as a member, we hadn't seen them since. And I don't mean like they're going over to one of the other places and worshiping there. What I mean is, like the parable, possessions and work and relationships has taken over their life. You say, Jeff, are you implying they're not a Christian? What I'm implying is, this is my opinion, if they stay in that, then the only thing I can conclude is they went out from us. They played the game for a while, but it didn't last. 
It wasn't real. Now we know. Just shooting straight. Honey, make sure we keep coming here. So It doesn't matter what I think. That's all I'm saying. God knows the truth. All I'm saying is, when you just like go away from the Lord for a long, long time, and you just keep staying in that and staying in that and staying in that, you're giving every, every indication you never were really a Christian. You were just faking it. Number four, hope for Israel. Is there hope for Israel? I have good news for you. Every seat at the kingdom banquet will be filled. There's always room for anyone who will put their faith and trust in Christ, even Jews. Yes, I know that for 2,000 years, the Jews have rejected Jesus as their Savior. Here's the good news. God is going to orchestrate a plan that is going to bring the Jews right back. He's going to, it's going to take him, him and the men. It's going to get rough. He's actually going to use the armies of the nations to come against them. And they're going to come from all the parts of the world, make their way back to their homeland. And they're about to get wiped out, but it's going to turn to a really good thing there at the end. Look at verse 24. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree, you Gentiles, you Gentile believers, that's me. If you were cut and grafted in, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, watch this, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Here's the hope for Israel. Stott says, this is, I thought this was a good quote, otherwise I wouldn't give it to you. Here it comes. The restoration of Israel is an easier process than the call of Gentiles. So yes, individual Jews have been cut off. It's not their time. It's only a remnant. But in time, don't you know that as God brought you in as wild olive branches, don't you know he can bring original Jewish ones back into the tree? That's easier than calling Gentiles. You say, Jeff, why would you say that? Because the Jews are only missing one piece of information. Only one piece of information, and they're going to get it. You say, what is it? Jesus is the Christ. The moment, look at verse 15, this is so key. For if their rejection, oh, God's rejecting them. If that means reconciliation for the world, oh yeah, we're kind of getting the good end of the deal of that right now. If that's the case, watch Paul's question. What will their acceptance mean? What about when God accepts them? What will that mean? But life from the dead. I want to give you a quick hint, and I'm done. Say, Jeff, you believe in a literal 1,000-year reign? Oh, yeah. When do you think it'll happen? I'm getting ready to tell you. It'll happen within hours and days when the Jews as a whole look upon Christ and they recognize we're the ones that pierced him. He really is the Messiah. And then he will run and defend them to the nations, what we call the Battle of Armageddon. At the end of the tribulation, they will run at him, and the armies of the nations are going to run behind them, and they're going to encounter, whoa, who's this? Yeah, you're getting ready to deal with me, and it doesn't go well for the armies of the nations. And then the tribulation period begins. You're like, what is that like? It's like these dry bones in a valley that in one day come to life and become this living, thriving nation, Israel. You say, does that have anything to do with us? Oh, yeah. Here's what that means. The day that Jesus comes back, delivers the nation of Israel, they look on him whom they pierce, they believe it's all coming together. You, you say, what if I've already died and gone to heaven? You are about to get your glorified body and reign with Christ on the earth because if you die now and go to be with the Lord, your spirit will be with the Lord and it'll be way better than here, but you'll still be a little bit frustrated because you kind of want that body. You will not get the body until the Jews put their faith and trust in Christ. And when they do that, get ready, millennial kingdom's coming. It's going to be like life from the dead. Here's our applications. God controls the future. Second application. God has a glorious, gracious plan for the Jews and it centers in Christ. Third application. It's the last one. Verse 22. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who've fallen, God's kindness to you. God, let this sink in. God has unlimited power and resources. Unlimited. I'm telling you, everybody put yourself in one category or the other. Your eternal existence will either be, you got to get this, unimaginably joyous or unimaginably tormentuous and severe. 
It will be one or the other. You say, how can I be sure I'm not having, because he has unlimited power and resources, how can I be sure I don't have that unimaginably tormentuous and severe eternity? Only one way can you receive the unimaginably joyous eternity. How? By putting your faith in Christ. That's it. I don't have a new message. It's the same message. Have you put your faith and trust in Christ? There is going to be a banquet. It's a real event. There is a specific amount of seats at that banquet. They will all be filled. Are you, are you, are you positive you are going to be there? If you say, I am positive, why do you think that? Answer in your head right now. Do you have a Bible reason? Well, my grandma. No, the whole point of these three chapters has been being being related to someone, even being related to Abraham gets no one in. Do you have a Bible reason? You say, oh yes, I put my faith and trust in Christ. Does your life reflect it? Is your life a life of continuance? Is your life a life of continuing to believe? But it's getting hard. My faith's almost snapped. It never will snap. Say, Jeff, you don't know what life's going to throw at you in the next six months, the next six weeks, before the day is over. I know. I'm not asking for it. I have no confidence in Jeff. Jeff is a quitter. He will never persevere. But I know this. The one in me will not let me. Can I fall down? A just man falls seven times in a day. But he gets back up. He gets back up. He may be down a week. He may be down a few months. And like, it just gets so, like, boy, I'm starting to wonder. Hey, I'll come. I'll come back. You mark it down. Continuance is a sure sign of true faith. Heads bowed, eyes closed.